0: Hello and welcome back to What China Wants with uh, me, Sam Olsen, and of course, Stuart Patterson. And we normally talk about economic and political elements uh, of China and its influence around the world on our podcast. But uh, one of the things that comes up time and time again in the press especially in the Western press, is China's attitude to human rights. And indeed, many would argue that China's uh, relationship with, with human rights is absolutely crucial to understanding its economic and political programmes, And there's no one in Britain, certainly, who is more famous for his stance on China's human rights record than our guest today, who is Benedict Rogers. Ben is the co-founder of the NGO Hong Kong Watch and has been very much in the news in the last few years as Hong Kong has slid under the waves of the national security law. But he's also done many other things in Asia to do with human rights, for example, being the co-founder of the International Coalition to Stop Crimes Against Humanity in North Korea, and is the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party's Human Rights Commission. Full stop. He's also on the advisory board of the Inter- Parliamentary Alliance on China, and has been, in fact, uh, visiting China for a very long time. And so, if there is someone that actually we want to talk to who knows about China and, and human rights, it is Ben Rogers. And thank you very much for joining us today.
1: It's a great pleasure, Sam. Great, great to
0: be with you. Thanks for inviting me. And the reason we've got you on is because you've just written a new book called The China Nexus, which steps out the attitude of China to human rights in, in lots of different areas, from Tibet to Hong Kong to Taiwan and North Korea, of course. My first question is, people would and often do criticise critics of China and its record on human rights, its record and other things, not to Western sensibilities, of being anti-Chinese. But you say in your book, this is not the case, you're not anti-Chinese, you're anti-CCP, a Chinese Communist Party. How do you reconcile that difference? Because surely there has to be an element of, of not liking what China as a whole stands for, given that the CCP is in control
1: of the country. Well, I think it's incredibly important to make this distinction, because what the CCP want to put out as a narrative is that the CCP and China are one and the same. And they're, they're not at all. I mean, um, China predates the CCP by many, many centuries, and is a, a great uh, ancient culture and civilization that has given the world so much. And I, I mean, I I would say not only am I not anti-China, I'm, I'm actually very pro-China as a country, as a culture a, a people. I first went there when I was 18 to teach English in Qingdao for six months, made lots of friends there. And it's because I'm pro-China that I want the people of China to have their human rights, their human dignity respected. And it's the CCP that is the threat to those basic human rights. So making that distinction, I think, is not only possible, it's it's essential. Thanks, Ben. Can we
2: just talk a little bit about Hong Kong then as a starting point in this discussion? Many of our listeners will have lived in Hong Kong at some point of their lives and will remember it as being a very free uh, society. Tragically, that appears not to be the case anymore. Perhaps we could actually just start by just outlining how repressive you think the national security law is and to what extent that has actually diminished Hong Kong as a, a jurisdiction in which to live, and in fact, to do even business?
1: Well, I think the national security law is is one of the most draconian laws that, that I've ever seen in all my years of, of working on human rights issues. And part of the problem with the national security law is that it's so vaguely defined, and the red lines keep moving. So one can't be certain from one day to the next, whether what one says or does might be a, a violation of the national security law, but it's, it's impact has been that civil society has almost completely been shut down. Certainly civil society of any political meaning. I, I, civil society that's engaged with social issues probably uh, is continuing, but human rights groups, political advocacy, ch- trade unions uh, are all pretty much shut down. It, it has completely silenced the democratic movement. Most pro democracy leaders in Hong Kong are either in prison or in exile or keeping their heads down and keeping a low profile. And just anecdotally, before the national security law came in, I was in pretty much daily contact with dozens of people in Hong Kong. I'm now not in contact with basically anybody in Hong Kong because all the people I know are either in jail or they're in exile, in which case I am in touch with them, or they're keeping their heads down, and I I don't want to endanger them. The other important thing to say is that, of course, press freedom has been totally dismantled as a result of this law. And some of the people who've been imprisoned as a result of this national security law are, in fact, British citizens. Is that correct? That is correct. So the most high profile example is, of course, Jimmy Lai, the founder of the Apple Daily newspaper. And he, he is a British citizen, He's been in jail now for more than two years on multiple charges and faces his national security law trial later this year. And at the age of 75, it's unlikely with all the charges that he's facing uh, that he will come out of jail. He'll probably spend the rest of his years behind bars. Okay, so it's
0: very, very sad from, uh, from a human rights point of view that Jimmy, uh, is in prison, but also the people that have been exiled is, you know, for them a tragedy. But Beijing and people that support Beijing within the former colony will always say that the reason that the national security law had to come in was because there was too much trouble being made on the streets and it was damaging Hong Kong's position as a city of international business and the fact that it was actually the protesters that started it perhaps backed by the CIA, which is uh, something which is commonly referred to. And actually, if that hadn't happened, if there hadn't been pro-democracy, which was never going to be the case within Hong Kong itself, then the Chinese authorities wouldn't have been forced to clamp down on this. And so Beijing would argue that the national security law and all the things that surround that are actually designed to make Hong Kong a better place to live for the people. How do you respond to that?
1: Well, I think that it's certainly... I think quite likely that the National Security Law was introduced uh, at the time and in the way that it it was as a result of the protests in 2019 but I think what I would dispute is the idea that it would never have happened at all I think the consequence of the 2019 protests was probably to accelerate the crackdown but I think the crackdown was was coming anyway and in fact we already saw indicators of that even before 2019 we saw the disqualification of uh, a number of pro-democracy legislators who'd been elected. We saw the abduction of the Causeway Bay booksellers, the imposition of mainland Chinese law at the high-speed rail terminus. So this kind of creeping erosion of of Hong Kong's freedoms was already happening. And I think the national security law in some form would have come anyway. I mean, Beijing was wanting the Hong Kong government, of course, to introduce Article 23, the anti-subversion law. And instead, because of the 2019 protests, Beijing uh, imposed without any consultation with Hong Kong, this national security law. The other thing I would dispute, of course, is the idea that the 2019 protests were Western backed or Western initiated, CIA initiated. I I think not only is that nonsense, I think it's actually insulting to the people of Hong Kong, because it implies that they're not able to think and act for themselves. They're perfectly able to think and act for themselves. And the 2019 protests, whatever your view of them, were a genuine initiative by thousands of Hong Kong people, of course, initially in opposition to the proposed extradition law, and then it transformed into a broader pro-democracy movement. But the international community morally uh, expressed support, but certainly didn't initiate them. So in a similar vein, maybe
2: we should talk a little bit about Xinjiang then, because, you know, that is the other subject that is most front of mind in, in the Western media when they think China and human rights. The camps were first of all denied in terms of even their existence, I believe, by the uh, CCP. They, I think, clearly exist. The Chinese would argue that, you know, there was terrorist activity in Xinjiang, that they've successfully um, reduced the level of terrorist activity, if not uh, eliminated it. And therefore, these camps need to be thought of as a method of, of integrating the minorities into mainstream society. Why do you disagree with that? And what evidence is there that there is is more to it than that sort of argument?
1: So I think there are two points. Although the CCP initially denied the existence of the camps, actually, they do now acknowledge their existence, they they call them something different, they call them, you know, vocational re-education centres, but they do at least acknowledge that they exist. And, and secondly, on the on the question of terrorism, I mean, I, I would certainly acknowledge that there were a few terrorist incidents. There were a small minority of Uyghurs that did engage in in what we would regard as terrorist acts. But the idea that a million, perhaps as many as two or three million Uyghurs are, are all terrorists, uh, or, or that they all support such acts, and that they all deserve to be locked up in, in these camps is absurd. And I worry that in the long term, the totally disproportionate and horrifically repressive response of the CCP towards the, the Uyghurs is actually counterproductive because it's going to sow further resentment, which I hope this doesn't happen. I hope particularly for the sake of the Uyghurs, this doesn't happen. But it has the potential to transform into more terrorism, not not less. And and crucially, what's happening in Xinjiang has actually been increasingly regarded by a growing number of, of experts as a genocide, both the former US Secretary of State and the, the current Secretary of State have designated it uh, genocide. Several parliaments have done so. Uh, And crucially, uh, an independent tribunal a couple of years ago, chaired by very respected British barrister Sir Geoffrey Nice, who had been the prosecutor of Slobodan Milosevic, they came to the conclusion that this is a genocide. And it's not just the camps, it's forced abortions, forced sterilisation, forced organ harvesting, forced labour, and very severe religious persecution of Muslims. So it's a really horrific assault on, on the Uyghurs of Xinjiang.
2: Some of our listeners might not be so aware, but as you've alluded to there, in, in addition to the camps that the, the Chinese authorities would claim were sort of re-education camps, there's a sort of concerted effort, as, as I understand it, to sort of eradicate Uyghur culture more broadly. Can, can you just give us some examples of, of activity orientated around that?
1: Yes, absolutely. Looking first at the religious culture of of Uyghur Muslims, uh, it it is now highly likely that if you're a Uyghur with a a beard of a certain length, or you're wearing a a hijab, or you're fasting during Ramadan, you abstain from from pork or alcohol, or or you're reading the Quran, uh, all of those acts are enough to land you potentially in a prison camp. Many mosques have been destroyed or, or closed. Uyghur Muslim cemeteries have been Desecrated and, and and closed, and crucially, the CCP has a policy of, for those who aren't in the prison camps, um, of uh, uh, moving into Uyghur homes. Literally, sending officials to to live with Uyghur families in order to monitor their activities twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. And the Uyghur language, I think, is also now uh, very much uh, under threat. And it's really a process to turn Uyghurs culturally, at least, I- into. Into Han Chinese, and, and perhaps that's an important
2: point that we just need to explain to those less familiar with it. Xinjiang has not always been part of China, has it? And in fact, I think is it a semi-autonomous region notionally in terms of the sort of constitutional existence, even if in fact it's it's ruled directly from Beijing.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, throughout history, it's it's sort of changed hands, and and the and the borders have have changed at different times. But yes, that's right. Currently, it is supposed to be a a semi-autonomous region. But in reality, it, uh, it is totally ruled by Beijing. There will be people listening to this, especially uh, many of our
0: Chinese listeners, who will deny that many of the worst things that you said are happening in Xinjiang. Um, and they will say that a lot of the evidence has been planted and perhaps made up and fabricated. But instead, going back to Stuart's point, it is all about terrorism. And in fact, the parallel that has been drawn for me by a number of mainland Chinese uh, over the years has been with Northern Ireland. And the fact that the British did internment in Northern Ireland against, obviously, quite a few people from the Catholic uh, background. And not only that, but they look at the, the wider record of human rights within the West, especially the treatment of prisoners and black population in America, and say that the West has got its own problems with human rights. And so how dare we have a go at China when actually it's not a question about human rights. It's a question of misunderstanding the way that China needs to get to grips with controlling population for the sake of the wider population. Uh, again, Ben, I mean, surely there is something to this because China has got 1.4 billion people. It's a huge landmass. It's got a, a culture very different to that of the West isn't it fair to say that there are parallels between what we in the West are doing to keep our society safe and what the Chinese are doing?
1: Well, I think firstly, it's it's definitely important for Western countries to acknowledge our faults, to acknowledge that we're far from perfect. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't speak out on human rights issues in China. And I think one key difference is that when bad things happen in Western countries or by Western governments, because we're Open democratic uh, systems. We, we have, by and large, systems of justice and, and accountability. When these things are exposed, people are uh, held to account both through press scrutiny but also through judicial ways. And that doesn't happen in China. And, and the other thing I would say is that the abuses that occur in the West, uh, by and large, I would say, are not systematic. They are the acts of bad actors in the system rather than the system itself. Whereas in China, it is the system itself that is responsible. On the question of um, evidence for what's happening in in Xinjiang, uh, I think it's remarkable, given how limited access is and how closed the Xinjiang region is to outsiders, uh, it's remarkable how much evidence has emerged through uh, the testimonies of survivors who've, who've managed to escape, through uh, satellite uh, footage and and crucially through uh, several Han Chinese journalists who have at great risk to themselves gone into the region to see the situation for themselves and um, uh, there's a I, I don't recall his name but there was a very brave Chinese reporter who put out a, a film I think through AP uh, a couple of years ago. There's a remarkable guy, Sean Zhang, in Canada, who went through satellite imagery to prove the the camps. So it's not just Westerners that are doing this. There are some very brave Chinese who've helped expose the situation. Ben, you, you mentioned fleetingly
2: human organ harvesting. And obviously, this has been a story or a reality that has been around for a while. In fact, some has been admitted to by the party, but has been dismissed as what, as you described, sort of bad actors, rogue actors within the party abusing their power. Is there substantial evidence that human organ harvesting, by which we mean here just for sake of clarity, the forced removal of organs from living donors for medical purposes, and, and they're usually prisoners, or at least that is the accusation, often prisoners of conscience. Is there a credible body of evidence that this has been going on? And that it has been done with official approval in a sort of systematic way.
1: There is indeed. When I first came across this issue, probably six or seven years ago, I was initially quite sceptical because it sounded so appalling and, and shocking. I, I thought, can this really be happening? And also, of course, the evidence is very difficult to find. Unlike other human rights violations, by definition, there aren't really any survivors, and the people who carry it out are the only. Witnesses, so it is difficult to prove, but there is a growing body of evidence, both through a number of uh, witnesses or survivors who who have talked about it. Uh, there's a very brave uh, Uyghur surgeon uh, Enver Totti who uh, has publicly admitted to taking part in in an operation to remove human organs from a, a prisoner. But crucially, and I mention him again, Sir Geoffrey Nice, KC a few years ago, chaired an independent inquiry into this very issue. And what was important about that tribunal was that it it was made up of people who had no previous involvement, either in this particular issue or in in China human rights. So they were coming at it entirely independently, but with great expertise. And it consisted of Sir Geoffrey Nice and very prominent surgeon and a number of other lawyers and academics. And they heard many hours of evidence and and lots of written evidence as well, and all of which can be found on the China Tribunal website, which I think is Chinatribunal.com. And they came to the conclusion at the end of a very exhaustive process that this is happening and that it amounts to a crime against humanity. So in terms of the evidence, it's all there on the China Tribunal website.
0: So a country which has definitely got a problem with human rights is North Korea. Now you've been studying North Korea for a while and and obviously it mentions in your book The China Nexus, but today you might have seen the news that they've fired two more ballistic missiles off the East Coast and Kim Jong-un's sister is now sort of up in the ante about using the, the Pacific as a firing range for their testing and basically just Pushing back on America and South Korea uh, and Japan, of course. To what degree, though, is the stability of the regime in North Korea helped by China? And if indeed China is helping to prop up that
1: regime, why? So uh, definitely, uh, China is helping to prop up that regime. And I would I would say that without the economic lifeline, the political and diplomatic lifeline that China provides, the regime might well not survive. Why is China propping it up? I think primarily because it doesn't want a unified Korea and it certainly doesn't want a a unified pro Western democratic Korea on, on its doorstep. I would say that I think the relationship between China and North Korea is not easy and China is not necessarily in favor of everything Kim Jong un's regime does, but it's a sort of marriage of convenience because China regards north korea is its patch and uh, it wants a regime that it can prop up and influence rather than either uh, a regime that collapses and and there's uh, instability or uh, a unified democratic korea
0: and of course korea south korea uh, is increasingly christian Uh, i think someone told me there is a third christian now uh, with very much the evangelical wing of things but with a large catholic population too Christianity is something else you write about, and something that I, I've been thinking about for a long time in terms of China's adoption of that religion. And it's now said that there are more Christians, or Protestants, in fact, let alone Christians as a whole, in China than there are members of the Communist Party. And again, I've heard from Chinese friends saying that this represents a threat the stability of the Chinese Communist Party, and it's therefore not a wonder that the CCP is camping down on Christianity in the country. To what degree are Christians under threat there? And
1: do you think that they do represent a threat to the power of the CCP moving forward? Certainly, uh, the persecution of Christians under Xi Jinping has intensified to a level not seen probably since the, the Cultural Revolution. There, there was a period in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, where the picture for Christians varied throughout the country because it was much more dependent on the attitude of the local provincial authorities than Beijing. And there were parts of China where things were a bit more relaxed and unregistered Christian churches, sometimes quite large ones, were tolerated. A a blind eye was turned and it was a sort of gray area. Now under Xi Jinping, most of those unregistered churches have been shut down. Uh, lots of people have been jailed. And then there's the, the state-controlled church, which is has always existed un, under the CCP. And in those state-controlled churches, there is now a, a campaign by the CCP to have pictures of Xi Jinping uh, on the wall alongside, or sometimes even instead of, religious uh, imagery have CCP propaganda banners in the church, um, surveillance cameras monitoring everybody who is is coming to the church. People under the age of 18 are prohibited from going to places of worship. And I've also been told that on WeChat or Weibo, if you share a, a hymn or a, a verse from the Bible, that very swiftly disappears, and you can end up in in, in trouble for doing so. So it's a very severe crackdown. Why does the CCP fear Christianity? I think it it fears any idea that is different from, from its own ideology, and that has the ability to bring people together in large numbers. That's, that's what it fears. And Christianity is a prime example of that. Ben, thank you so much for that. And
0: it's been a very interesting conversation. But I've got one final question, which I think I need to ask you, and it's certainly something that the business people listening to this will want me to do. And that is around China, uh, human rights, and actually doing business with China, because many would argue that trade And the exchange of economic activity is the only way that we're going to be able to make China more like us and to improve the lives of the people within China. And actually, the focus on human rights the perhaps narrow focus on human rights that NGOs such as Hong Kong Watch and others in the West uh, look at and publicize is actually doing harm for the long term development of China. And therefore, we should probably just keep quiet and let the business people do their work and to make everyone richer and more prosperous. And by that, we would make life better for everyone in China and in the West. Obviously, I'm pretty sure you're not going to agree with that. But for those listeners, why wouldn't you agree with that?
1: Well, I think for several reasons. I mean, I was actually of the view in the 90s and first decade of the 2000s as it looked like China was opening up, relaxing, certainly opening up economically, but relaxing to some extent. Politically, there was some space, albeit restricted for some degree of civil society. There were Chinese lawyers who I met who were defending human rights cases within China. And so at that time, I was much more optimistic about this idea that engaging and trading with China is the way to open it up. And I was at that time, quite low key on on the human rights questions publicly. I think I would say that approach simply didn't work. And it simply emboldened the CCP to become even more repressive at home, and also even more aggressive abroad. And I think the connection between what the CCP does at home and abroad is clear. And therefore, it's in our interest to speak out and to hold the CCP accountable for its human rights violations, because ultimately they're becoming a a growing threat to our freedoms as well. That doesn't mean we shouldn't trade at all. But I think we should be much more strategic about our business relationship and much bolder in speaking out for our values.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ben. And your book, The China Nexus, is out now. It's been great speaking to you. I'm sure this is going to encourage a lot of debate on our comments pages. And if you'd like to comment, please do on what China wants. So Stuart and I will be back next week for more discussion on China and its influence abroad.
1: Thanks, Ben. Goodbye. Thank you very much.